Yeah, I did. <laughs> All right, welcome back. Welcome back to another Monday. So last time we gathered as a church, I relayed uh, to you a message, really quite heartfelt message. Uh, we covered only the first verse in chapter four, but we had a rather extensive survey of New and Old Testament views on false teachers. My aim in the last lesson was pro- uh, threefold primarily. I want to one, establish that not everyone is a true teacher and not everything that is said is true. Obviously, that's kind of an axiom of truth, but I think it was worth stating. Two, I want to show you that God takes false teachers and false teaching very, very seriously. And then third, on a personal note, I wanted to let you know how deeply I am personally concerned for your adherence to the truth, and I wanted to show that I love you all enough to warn you of potential deceivers coming to take advantage of you, spiritually speaking, that is. And so we really covered a broad swath of verses. And I will warn you, tonight we're not going to make it much further than we did last week. Uh, We're only going to make it through one verse, uh, to be accurate. But um, on this premise, then, we're going to return to our study in 1 John. John is about to show, so last night, sorry, not last night, but last time we discussed that not everyone is a true teacher. Tonight we're going to start opening and unpacking what John describes as a true teacher. What we're going to see here in this passage is not an exhaustive list of what it means to be a true teacher, but I believe what John is doing here is giving us a class or a section of beliefs which are necessary for salvation. It's not that there's plenty more. There are plenty other ways a teacher can go egregiously wrong. This isn't exhaustive, but I believe that uh, this class of beliefs, which would be termed Christology, which is the study of Christ, is the area to which we are going to turn. In false religions in general, Christology is something that is consistently wrong. There are other ways in which you can go wrong, but your having an aberrant view of Christ is common to false teaching. So here's the fundamental question. Actually, I'm just curious, any, any students of church history, what is the fundamental question that has plagued the church regarding the person of Christ throughout the centuries? Just in a statement, if, if you are familiar with church history. I understand that most of you this is going to be very new material for. and the church has had their stance that he's fully God and fully man and then many false teachers and heretics have gone to no, he's one or the other. Sure. So, oh, sorry, go so ahead. I was just going to say that in especially early church history, um, the Trinity was one of the most large, one of the most widely discussed topics and are, um, argued topics of the day. Yes. I, I will say on the Trinity note that I have intentionally left Trinitarian discussion is a whole different discussion than Christology. They're, they're connected, okay, because Christ, the Trinitarian position, would argue that he's part of the Trinity. It's related, but Christology proper is a different study and a different discipline entirely. Yes? Um, sure, Trinitarianism, Trinity studies in general, is how, is talking about and debating and, you know, all that sort of stuff, how God can be one in essence, yet three different persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So 
explaining how he is one and yet many at the same time. Whereas, the, and this is how I phrased a broad thing, that in terms of Christology, what the church has wrestled with for ages is how are the divine and human natures related in Christ, broadly. Because, you know, you're going to, I'm going to skip ahead and say, I think we're all familiar with the statement that, you know, Jesus is fully God and fully man. Okay, you know, but that phrase hasn't been, like, just a given all along. We live on this side of history. And, you know, for the people that were really wrestling with these issues, at the first, th those statements weren't there for them to just draw off of. And so I want to give a little bit of background tonight about what we are, how we came to that position as a church. I'll be quick to say that the church took issues about Christ very, very seriously because they believed that it was essential to a true belief in the gospel. Salvation was intricately tied to a proper understanding of Christ for the early church. Um, the verse, I'll go ahead and read the verse for this evening. I don't believe I handed this out. <clears throat> this is the verse that we'll be on for tonight. By this, you know the Spirit of God. Now, going back a verse. Which book is this again? Uh, yes. First John 4. Thank you. Um, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits, whether they are of God. You know, not every spirit is of God. We've got to be a little discerning. Why? Because many false prophets have gone out into the world. So we're not looking for a good vibe, a tingle down the spine, or anything like that. We're looking for orthodox truth, and we're going to define orthodox here in a moment. But hear this. By this, we're getting to another objective test. By this, you know the Spirit of God. You want an authentic work of the Spirit? Here's what to look for. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. So Christology, the study of Christ, is essential to a proper understanding of what the Spirit of God is doing, where he's moving, and the gospel. Test number nine, then, does the teacher and that spirit that that teacher is teaching on behalf of confess true Christology? So in a, in a sense, if we're talking about a test of the faith, you can apply this to yourself if you believe the truth about Christ. In context, though, I want to be upfront and say that primarily he is referring to what are the teachers around you saying. So let's go ahead and turn over to Second John. I, this is you'll see some really similar themes now that we're going. We've gone a long way through First John. You're going to see that John likes to repeat himself a little bit. Um, it's very, very important to see how John is dealing with this issue. Second John four through ten. This uh, this idea of Christology was a big thing, not just in the early church, not just in the middle church, but rather right from the very get-go in the apostolic era, Christology was a big deal. Second John 4 through 10. Ahead and does not continue in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever 
Just off the cuff, now that we've been quite laboriously studying First John, what are some parallelisms you see between Second John and First John? Well, there's a large emphasis on knowing and understanding what love is, as defined by God, by Christ in His example. Sure. Other similar phrases, similar ideas. Yep, there we go with the abide word again. He really likes that one. Notice how he says, I'm not writing to you a new commandment. That's a very similar concept to something we heard recently in 1 John. But for our purposes here, in John's particular case, he is saying that if someone denies the incarnation of Christ, that is that Jesus came in the flesh, we would lose what we are striving for, not win a full reward, and fundamentally that we would not have God. Verse 10 uh, then says that if you share fellowship with false teachers, and that is what welcoming them into your house and bidding Godspeed, that was the equivalent. Their platforms were largely out of the home, you know, home churches and such. So sharing home, sharing fellowship was a sign of I approve. So in today's you know, setting, it would be like a church partnering with another church and saying, yeah, I, I agree with what that church is teaching. He says, if you do that, you're a partaker in their wicked deeds. So the church took this very, very seriously from the start, not just that you don't believe it personally, but that you're separating yourself from false teachers. Chloe, would you be willing to define the word orthodoxy? Orthodoxy, so there's the word heterodoxy and the word orthodoxy. Um, those are, if you're familiar with roots and prefixes and suffixes, you'll know that those are opposite terms. Heterodox meaning something that is opposite and against the usual, and orthodox meaning? Orthodox from Greek orthodoxos, uh, the right opinion, true doctrine and its adherence as opposed to heterodox or heretical doctrine. The word was first used in the fourth century Christianity by the Greek fathers. So the idea here is what the church has always believed. This is the established position of the church, um, the normative belief of the church. Does that, I, I'll, I'll probably end up accidentally saying that word orthodox. So are we, is there any question as to what we mean regarding that term? It's okay if there is, I just wanna make sure that we're all on the same page. Okay. You will also hear it uh, used in terms of the Greek Orthodox church. So you may hear of an Orthodox denomination you know, they're basically claiming to be the true doctrine. That's what that statement is saying. So we're going to dive into a little bit of the history. This is a largely church history-driven lesson, okay? There are always going to be these same heresies. They're going to come back. It's the same old things repackaged with a new bow and taught a different way. For instance, Arianism repackaged basically Jehovah's Witness. It's the same sort of thing back up once again. So I want to introduce you to their historical origin so that when you're going around and looking at different churches and looking through complex belief statements, you're going to be like, huh, that kind of sounds like XYZ thing. So before we talk about the Christological heresies proper, I think it's important to tell you that there were primarily two different schools of thought uh, for a time in the early church. 
Now, these two schools of thought originated in two different cities. Um, on your, uh, I think I'll try to follow the handout as much as I can. On the top of your handout, you'll see that there is a, a section for Ale uh, Alexandrian Christology and Antiochian Christ Christology. So that famous city with that beautiful library in ancient Egypt, Alexandria, po popularized by National Treasure, um, that was a hotbed for theology and philosophy. It was a center of learning. It was, a, it was a big thing for intellectuals and thinkers of the day. On the other hand, you have the city of Antioch. Big time stuff happened in Antioch in the book of Acts. It was a Christian hub for basically since Christianity has existed. These two locations became known for different schools of thought. It's not that every individual who takes an Antioch position lived in Antioch, but rather ideologies sort of hubbed around these two different cities. So, and, uh, excuse me, Alexandria had what is called a Logos Sarks view of Christology. Um, Alexandria, uh, Alexandria, Alexandria stressed the divinity of Christ. Alexandria stressed the divinity of Christ. Um, it, uh, just for your, just for your personal interest in area of hermeneutics uh, regarding interpretation of the Bible. Alexandria was known for its allegorical interpretation or a non-literal interpretation. Antioch, on the other hand, was known for its logos anthropos view of Christology. Uh, Antioch stressed the humanity of Christ. So again, setting up the paradigm here, you have Alexandria focusing on divinity. On the other hand, you have Antioch focusing on humanity. Um, in terms of interpretation of the Bible, Antioch took a very literal style of interpretation. Uh, if I recall correctly, uh, Theodore of Mopsuetsvia, um, John Chrysostom, these are figures from the Antioch tradition in the early church, if you come across those names. Yes, and uh, as you all know, uh, just from things you've interacted with today, when you really emphasize one thing, you often do it at the expense of another. So one side really pushing humanity, humanity, humanity kind of minimizes the deity. And another side that's like deity, deity, deity ends up pushing down and minimizing humanity. This is a very, you know, whenever you debate somebody about a topic and the position that you take, you tend to minimize the other side of the coin. And this is what we see happening a lot. And so when you have these two different parties, you have extremists within each group that have very extreme positions, even for their own camp. And so that are, those are where some of the heresies sprung from. But before we get into that, I, I think it's important that we talk about Arianism. This is a very fundamental Trinitarian and Christological heresy that was kind of the, like the bed for all the other heresies that, not all of them in timeline, but a lot of the heresies to follow came from that grassroot of Arianism. Arianism is probably, in my estimation, in the top five of challenging things that the church has ever had to deal with. It had to deal with legalism, and Juda Judaizers, you know, that feel that Paul had to deal with in Galatians, all these different things up until today. Arianism is something that you should be familiar with, even if you're not a student of theology. It's it's just something that has been like absolutely massive for the church throughout history. And it still is. It's, I 
fundamental difference between us. Like there's others obviously, but this is like what really separates them. Um, and what, you know, if a Jehovah's Witness comes to your door and you don't know what Arianism is, you don't know how to defend yourself against it, they will destroy you. Not like, they just, they will, they, they did it to me. <laughs> and then I actually like studied it and because they literally, they study upwards of eight to 12 hours a week on their theology and how to answer people. They're good. They're really, really good. They're good. Well, I think it's also important to learn about it because it's one of the few new things, and I'm just saying new very loosely here, um, as far as looking at the Bible, we've seen in Ecclesiastes is nothing new under the sun. You see that in a lot of the ways that people were looking at the Bible, looking at God, uh, you, you know, even even something like socialism goes as far back as like Plato's Republic. You can trace a lot of socialist ideas there. But um, this idea of Arianism and, and questions about the, the divinity of Christ and the Trinity, uh, this is really one of the first new things in a long time, and it took Christ coming to Earth for us to, to realize that. So this is this is kind of a I mean, it's two thousand years old, but it's still a, a relatively new idea that we've been wrestling. So Arianism, and this is the Jehovah's Witness position by in broad strokes here, Arianism is the belief that Jesus was not fully God and that he was a created being, okay? The, this is still around in Christian cults today. Let me walk you through Arius' logic. You kind of wonder, like, how does somebody even end, like, how do you even end up there? Let me, let me walk you through the logic. If the Father begat the Son... He that was begotten had a beginning of existence. Does that make sense? So when it says Christ is the Son of God, He's the only begotten of God, the Father, every one of you has been begotten of a Father, and that always means that there was a time when you didn't exist. Okay, is that, is that clear? So when, when Arius reads that Jesus is begotten of the Father, his mind immediately says, wait a second. That means that there was a time, hence it was clear that there was when the son was not. And that's the phrase, there was when he was not. That becomes the common catchphrase of Arianism. It follows then of necessity that he had his existence from the non-existent, God the Father, begot out of nothing, Jesus. And this is an Arius quote here. We are persecuted because we say that the son had a beginning, and likewise, we say that he is made out of nothing. And if he is a made being and has not always existed, that means he's different from God. And if he's different from God, he is not fully God. Does that lot, like if you if you're there, I'm not saying it's right, but if you're in that mindset, do you see how you can walk through that logic? Okay. Now, there's there, I'm not going to get into the answers necessarily that the Trinitarian authors gave to him, but the question was debated time and time again in the early church. Unfortunately, for time's sake, we're not going to be diving into this fully, but suffice it to say, it was a very, very persuasive ideology um, in the early church. It was very persuasive. If it were not for literally one dude, you would be Jehovah's Witnesses. His nickname is the Black Dwarf, um, Athanasius, as he is so-called. Praise God for Athanasius. You would not be a Christian if it weren't for Athanasius. God really raised him up to protect the church at that point. 
as I mentioned earlier, I, I have written a short essay explaining the interaction between the position of uh, Arius and his uh, basically Trinitarian counterpart in the same day, Alexander of Alexandria, which I have brought a, a copy of if you're interested in reading it. Now, just for your history and your timeline, Athanasius was an assistant to Alexander of Alexandria. And so when, Athanasius, when Alexander and Arius passed off the scene, Athanasius really took up the fight and he, he pr protected the church from this heresy. So that's where Athanasius fits into this picture. So let's start with Apollinarianism. Um, Apollinarianism uh, was a tremendous opponent of Arianism. You know, when you're trying to fight against something, there's a natural tendency to overcorrect. Whenever you, like, you're like, I hate this, you go and swing the pendulum way the other way. That's what we see Apollinarius did. I want you to think of Apollinarianism as an overcorrection to Arianism, okay? Apollinarius hated the idea of denying the divinity of Jesus, but in so doing, his conception of Jesus denied the humanity of Jesus. He said that humans, ha it's called a tripartite view of humans, that humans have a body, soul, and spirit. He believed that the divine aspects of Jesus replace the human soul. On your handout there, I believe you have a, a picture of, Apoll of Apollinarianism. The, the tripartite view, soul, body, spirit, we see that only the divine, uh, the, the divine aspect of Jesus is limited to the soul. So Jesus had a divine soul and a human body and spirit. This has been referred to quite quaintly as the God in a bod heresy. So, <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. It's really, though, it's God, the Logos, God in a bod. It's not that he became one and fully human. It's that God went down and be, was just placed in a body. So the big idea of Apollinarianism, in Jesus Christ, there was not a human rational soul, but the Logos took the place of the rational soul. The Logos was the intelligent, the intellect or the mind. The second one I'd like to cover briefly is Nestorian, uh, Nestorianism. So Nestorius was dumb and brilliant. Um, just for interesting note, Nestorius on Christmas day in 428 decided to start a fight with a different dude on this. Um, and who was way more powerful than him, and he got himself banished. So don't start fights with people that are more powerful than you on Christmas Day. That's our lesson from Nestorius. Um, Nestorius believed that um, it was improper that it was to say that the divine logos, which mean, that's the word translated word in John, in John 1, he felt that it was improper to say that the word was born of a human. Like, as in, how could Mary give birth to God? Uh, he, Mary's, Mary gave birth to David's son in whom the Logos had taken up residence, was his view. Thus, in his mind, it was wrong to call Mary the God-bearer, which they debated over this term called theotokos, but that's not here nor there. He, he felt it was wrong because how can you say that God is born? Like, if God cannot die, then it's just as wrong to say that God can be born. So he felt that, you know, if God is immutable, impassable, perfect, then you can say that his human nature, but not his divine nature was born. 
Uh, so Nestorius thought that Jesus had the nature of God and the nature of man in him. However, and here's the kicker, here's the philosophical kicker. Nestorius said that if you have two natures in you, then that's a nature is insepar inseparably tied to personhood. Notice the subtlety that we're getting to. It's almost off in the weeds, but they consider this very important. He said that if you have two natures, then you have to have two persons. So the big idea of Nestorius was that in Jesus, there are two natures. Sounds good so far, but catch this. Thus, there must be two persons in Christ. So Jesus is literally two persons. As you see on here, Nestorianism, divine nature, human nature separated into two distinct persons in Christ. Um, not, not that it is schizophrenic, but it almost gives that vibe of like a schizophrenia in Jesus of two people in him. Is he not the one that also um, claimed that when Jesus was on the cross, his divine nature was sitting on a tree laughing? Um, I, that would be more the, on the continuum, that's more the docetic um, or Gnostic flair. Uh, those, are, those are more found in Gnostic writings. Um, I have not read Nestorius's writings directly, um, but I think I think that's the idea. There's two people within him. So, is that, uh, let's pause there for a question. Is that does that make? You see why this is a, it's tricky stuff, but we're going to get into more like important stuff here in a moment. Do you see kind of the flavor of the questions that the church was asking? Well, I, I'm not exactly sure how Nestorius conceived of it, but that's one of his complaints is, how can you say a three-month-old is God? I mean, really. How can you say this baby is God Almighty? So he's like, well, yeah, that's, that's Jesus a human. And so this is this weird, like, and you get us into some really weird theological sticking points as a result of that. I was, gonna say, I was talking about Josh and uh, everybody else in our prayer group earlier. Um, you know, we, we, as Christians, we thank God. This is crazy. I mean, the Greeks and uh, the Jews at the time were asking real hard questions about this, mm -hmm. and, and it's not, like, if, if you're keeping up with this, I, I, maybe you guys are different, but I can easily see how you could come to some of these conclusions. They, sure. You know, they weren't dumb for believing these things. They were just wrong because they, <laughs> <laughs> they, they hadn't had that part of the truth given to them. Yet. So yeah, I think it is pretty easy to understand how they could come from these heresies. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I really don't want, like, we live in a post, I'm going to use some council names here, post-Nicene, post-Chalcedon, post a bunch of different councils and creeds that have been put forth, and so we're like, well, that's dumb. But when you're trained up in Greek philosophy, and you come to be a Christian, and you're like, how is this supposed to work? Then you start trying to conceive of it, and you end up in some weird positions. Speaking of people that weren't brilliant, though, Eutychus, Eutychianism, um, and Monophysitism. Monophy, um, these are very similar ideas. My professor um, was not a big fan of Eutychus. Um, he said some pretty contradictory things. He's pretty hard to understand what he even meant. And some people have debated trying to put his ideas together. And my professor was like, maybe he just contradicted himself and didn't know what he was talking about. Maybe he wasn't the brightest bulb in the box. So the, Eutychus's position is complicated, contradictory, in my opinion, probably because it is contradictory. Um, 
Eutychus believed, generally speaking, that there was something completely new and different in the Incarnation. Okay? So, um, Eutychus... Yes, Joe, sorry. It's, it's not on the handout. I, I know some people are looking for it. That was not on here. Eutychian uh, is the, the picture. Eutychianism is the idea that when you have a divine nature and a human nature merging to become a hybrid fusion that is completely new. So he's not like God proper. He's not really human proper. There's something new. It's like mix blue and green together and you're going to get yellow. That's the idea. You get something completely different. He's a he's a beast of a, an animal, you know, just a different kind of beast. Like it's not even the same thing to say he's God, to say he's human. It's a whole new thing. So the big idea of uh, Eutychianism or Monophysitism um, is that in Jesus there is one nature, not two. There is one new kind of nature, not two distinct natures. Uh, Monophysitism. This is a little bit later of a heresy. So we've. This is. I'll explain some of the councils and creeds that went through this, but. We're getting a little bit later in time, and so you know, there's we've decided as a church that there's two natures in Christ. So that raises a question: if there are two, uh, not <clears throat> excuse me, not two persons in Christ. I think I made a mistake in my writings here. If there are two natures in Christ, um, then does Christ have two different wills? Um, Monothelitism, mono suggest and insisted that Jesus had no human will, but rather that Jesus only had the divine, the divine will of the Logos. Um, so the big idea of monothelitism is that in Jesus there is only one divine will and no human will. How do you define nature? Um, nature, as, as opposed to which term, sorry. These are, I just want to make sure I get terms right. Um, you don't want a new ERC, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> it won't be new, it'll just be rebranded. <laughs> it's exactly right. Um, Sabellianism. <laughs> yeah, it, I would say it's the summation of like characteristics and attributes of someone. So like when you say, when you talk about Jesus' human nature, it's that he's finite, temporal, can get tired, can get hungry. When you talk about the divine nature, you're talking about his attributes of immutability, you know, infinity, you know, all these different things that we attribute to God. So the, the thing, like, the, I'll give you an example of Jesus having two wills. Garden of Gethsemane. His human will says, ooh, Jesus, uh, God, I re God the Father, I really don't want to go through this. If there's any other way, please. But... Yet not my will, but thy will be done. You see this, this tension between what he wants as a human and not to feel the terrible pain of literally having his body pierced. Yet on the other side, you have this divine will of whatever, whatever you want out of me, Lord. So the, again, the big idea of monothelitism is that in Jesus there is only one divine will and no human will. This one, docetism. If you've fallen asleep, this is a great time to jump back in. <laughs> docetism is what John is dealing with here. Docetism in John 4, 2, 1 John 4, 2, 
this is what John is talking about. This is a very early heresy that you're seeing John start to get the flavor of at the end of his life, and he is not about it. He is not about it at all. So remember way back at the beginning of this study, what did we say John was written, first John was written to address largely? What heresy was he fighting? Gnosticism. Now, what are some of the fundamental things about Gnosticism? Gnosticism said that the flesh is bad, that matter is bad, inherently bad, and the spirit is good. So the world, the created things are bad, spiritual knowledge, enlightenment, that's all very good. And so to be saved, you have to transcend and have this transcendent knowledge, this esoteric, high, lofty sort of knowledge that will get you saved. Okay, So if you take that position, if you're a Gnostic and you're saying matter is bad, catch this, matter is bad and Jesus is good, therefore, what's the therefore? If matter is bad and Jesus is good, what's the, what's the natural consequence? Say that again. Jesus had no matter. Jesus had no matter. Absolutely. Jesus could not have had a matter. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, go ahead. Well, what I was going to say is that um, this kind of goes back to um, ancient Greek philosophy and kind of this idea of, um, yes. well, partially their idea of the form. So, like, for example, mm -hmm. you have many different types of chairs, but they all take on the form of chariots. And so they're not a perfect representation. And so the perfect representation is is an abstract thing and doesn't actually have the matter there. You're, you're kind of, there's this ideal thing in your mind and then there's what we have to work with here. And so what they're saying is, so there's this ideal version of what God is and then Jesus is the, the matter, but that's not actually what we want because the form is, is the good part. So that's kind of what that particularly what he just articulated that is Plato's philosophy um, in, in contrast um, oh great maybe a little bit of Socrates too but what we have from Socrates is written by Plato so it's hard to tell right and um, <laughs> Plato's uh, who followed Plato sorry uh, Aristotle Aristotle uh, they were kind of at odds with each other in some ways like they had different forms of philosophy in regard. I think they were on the same page as this one Aristotle brought the forms down to exist more in the thing themselves so like you have he had a tighter view of form and matter. But in terms of docetism, Jesus is good, matter is bad, therefore he couldn't have had a body. And this is exactly what Nathan was saying. The physical Jesus was on the cross. Yeah, he got crucified. But the, the real, the spiritual Jesus was on a tree branch laughing at the, at the physical Jesus. That's what some of their writings have. And if that is true, then the atonement is not real because there was nobody that This is like why Christology is important because if you if you get away from if you don't worry about the details the devil is in the details like if you don't worry about those details you can like really have some screwed up theology because mm -hmm. it changes a lot by what you do as Christ. You could tell Mary that if she went through all that labor pain for <laughs> no kids. <laughs> um. Yeah, just. The idea is that he had a phantom body. He may have appeared to have a body. It may have looked like he had a body, but he didn't really have a body. Okay? I was just going to say, some go so far as to say that, you know, if 
when Christ walked on the beach, he didn't have any footprints because he didn't have to run away. Yes. Say it again. How would he have, like, he died on the cross? That would have been the It was a really good illusion. Exactly. Right? That, that really, that really, really convinced him. Basically convinced everybody's mind. Like, he couldn't find any strings or, or the little <laughs> patch in the hat where the rabbit's hiding nothing, all right? <laughs> really convinced him. The big. Big idea of docetism. Because matter is fundamentally evil and Jesus is fundamentally good, Jesus could not have had a physical body. So, what did the church end up deciding was the right position, how, and how did we come to it? So, after much scripture-filled, philosophy-driven, politically motivated debating, the church landed on something called the hypostatic union. Fancy terms, fancy terms. Hypostatic union is English, um, it, it sounds fancy, but it's really quite simple. Hypostatic means personal. The hypostatic union is the personal union of Jesus' two natures. Jesus has two complete natures, one fully human and one fully divine. What the doctrine of the hypostatic union it teaches is that these two natures are united in one person in the God-man. Jesus is not two persons. He is one person with two natures. The hypostatic is the joining, mysterious though it be, of the divine and human natures in the one person of Jesus. So the big idea of the hypostatic union, there is a personal union in one person, Jesus, of divine and human natures. Jesus is fully God and fully man. So, and that's where you, you know, that common phrase that we throw around. That's where all that comes from. All this debate back and forth to get to that little phrase, just to get to that little phrase phrase. So be, and I'm going to list off some councils um, that helped guide these things. Uh, the Council of Nicaea dealt with Arianism uh, in 325, Council of Constantinople 381, Council of Ephesus 431, and here's the big boy, Council of Chalcedon 451, the second Council of Chalcedon 553, and the third Council of Cal uh, Constantinople in 680. This is how the church finally came to a conclusion. Um, in, in your handout, once again, I have included a summary statement um, uh, by Philip Schaff of the teach the, out of all these councils, here's what the church said, okay? Um, and he has some really great terminology that is very accurate. It's kind of one of those that you read a sentence at a time. If you want a summary of the summary, I put a little simpler one down there. Jesus is fully God, fully man. Jesus came in the flesh, born of the Virgin Mary. Christ has two natures, two wills, and is one person. That is the orthodox, historic position of the Western church. Now, we're not talking about Greek orthodoxy. That gets into some fun stuff. So what I want to say about this is this is not like, like this is something we, we you know, it's a simple sentence, fully got one, and we come to, and we go, oh, yeah, this makes perfect sense, but this is actually a really hard concept to come to. Yes. It's like somebody telling you that they just flipped a coin, and it fell on the table, and yet it was both heads up and tails up at the exact same time. And it's, it's, you look at them and say, oh, you're crazy, that can't happen, and that's kind of what we're saying has happened right now. So, uh, They're really, really brilliant people. Sounds simple, but it's really complicated. Yeah, really brilliant people had some really brilliant arguments to show that this was the truth. <clears throat> now let me, ask you, let me ask you this question, and I think this will get us back to a pertinent discussion for tonight. 
is it necessary to understand all this in order to be saved? Hardly. I, I, did, I was not familiar with it until this last year. You don't have to understand all this. I, I just wanted to introduce you to some of the ideas. Don't, don't take what I'm saying the wrong way. But I believe that there are some things that are essential and very fundamental to being a Christian that you must understand in order to be saved. Really, by and large, the things that are important in terms of salvation are on the extremes of your little continuum here. Um, What I'm going to argue is that you must believe that Jesus came in the flesh in order to be a Christian. And I'm also going to argue that you must believe that Jesus is fully God in order to be a Christian. Bringing it back down to a little bit of simpler land. I say simpler with a little caveat, a little grain of salt. It is, it is simple and straightforward, yet mysterious and deep and a wonderfully complex truth. You know, it, it's simple and deep. So let's go ahead and take a look um, at the first one, that Jesus Christ came in the flesh as being an essential bit for, um, for being a Christian and for being a true teacher. In context of our, for our purpose here, John is talking about what is a true teacher going to teach? What's a, what's a real Christian going to teach? First John 4.2. Um, I do, I do, so that's, that's pretty straightforward, you know, every spirit, that, every spirit that confesses this is from God. I do, however, believe that it's essential and proper to, uh, to salvation to believe that Jesus is God. First uh, John says this down in First John 4, 15. He includes this in a little bit different way. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and God. The obvious alternative being that if you don't confess that Jesus is the Son of God, you do not abide in him. I want to explore this in the New Testament just for a little bit um, because even in our own times, there have been many attacks on the deity of Christ. Here in 2014, a scholar, which we refer to kind of frequently in this group by the name of Bart Ehrman, published a book, How Jesus Became God, The Exaltation of a Jewish Preacher from Galilee. His position is that Jesus never really claimed to be God and later Christians inserted this into the narrative. Hence, hence they, they would say, like, what verses are you going to support your claim with that Jesus is God? Well, if you look up what verses talk about Jesus being God a lot, you're going to find that a lot of them are in the Gospel of John. You're going to find that a lot of them are in the later Pauline writings. And what are they going to say? Those are not historically accurate. They're written later. John is the last Gospel. And so as Christianity starts to gain a little theological footing, later Christians inserted the belief that Jesus was God. It was not original to Jesus. That is what this, like a lot of scholars are going to say on the liberal side, is that Jesus never claimed to be God. The early Christians didn't. Later Christians inserted it. Um, and so for our sakes tonight, I'm going to pass over that. I'm going to assume that we are all on the same page that any verse in the Bible is fair game. <laughs> for proving the divinity of Christ. But I do want you to be aware that if you're talking to a liberal scholar, they're going to be like, which book of the Bible did you get that from? John? Yeah, that's right. That's not original. Just to be honest with you guys. So, Jesus claimed to be God, and the apostles claimed Jesus to be God. 
many passages I could turn to, but I'm only going to use some of the more common ones for our purposes here tonight. Here's the fundamental principle. Jesus claimed to be God, John 5:18. He said, making himself equal with God. Jesus is one with God. And the apostolic testimony is that Jesus is God. Titus 2.13. Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Great God and Savior are both attributed to Christ in Titus. Um, as John 5.18 uh, shows us that anytime you hear Jesus making a comment about himself being the Son of God, that is him, uh, it's a title of equality with the Father. So for that matter, Jesus is one with the Father, John 10, 30. The Father and I are one. Boom, look at that. Nice and straightforward. Uh, and just out of curiosity, if you, if you were to debate me on that position, what verse would you throw back to me? If you were to say John 10, 30, if I said John 10, 30 that says Jesus is one with God, what verse would you respond with if you were taking the other side? I wouldn't turn there. Any? So if I were to say Jesus is one with God, what passage that, you know, I am one with the Father, what passage would you respond with? Would it be that verse, nevertheless, not my will, but thine? Uh, the passage I have in mind is the passage where it says, my Father is greater than I. So I am one with the Father, and my Father is greater than I. I'm going to let you wrestle with that. I'm not going to answer that for you. Can I, uh, insert one on the defense that Jesus is God. So if you look at Mark chapter 9, really from verse 2 to verse 12 it's the transfiguration. And on the mount, God himself says, this is my son with whom I'm well pleased. And the disciples, well, it was Peter and uh, James and John, they got to see Christ as who he was as the son of God, not just the, the part that they normally saw, which is the, the human aspect. Sorry. Avoid the heresies there, okay? I'm going to push back. Mark was the earliest gospel, so that's why I'm not going to with this, right? Um, so that was just, that was, you were seeing Michael the Archangel, which that's what they believe, so don't, like, just act like you didn't hear that part. So that was, you were just seeing Michael the Archangel in his glorified form. That's, it, it's still a created body, not a divine body. That is an excellent point from Josiah's whippersnaps, and as soon as the <laughs> is actually supposed to be pronounced, then I will respond to that. As soon as they can tell me how Jehovah is actually supposed to be pronounced, I will respond to that. The Hebrew spell is leave out the mouth. So yeah, I, 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 know, I know the video. I've seen it a few times. <laughs> John is the author in the New Testament who perhaps focuses on the divinity of Jesus more than any other author. Um, he uses numerous statements where Christ is saying, I am, a overt reference to the I am of the Old Testament. So John is your go-to guy if you're looking for statements regarding the deity of Christ. Briefly, I want to introduce you to one fundamental text out of John. Um, it's a big text in terms of Christology, John 1, 1 through 3, and 14. Um, when it says in the beginning, this was going to attract the eye of a Jewish reader because if you are a Jew and you see in the beginning God, what do you think of? Genesis. Genesis. And yet, here's what John says. So this is a fundamentally different idea. 
John 1, 1 through 3, and 14. Did you, uh, 14 as well, yes? Okay, just one. You read 14, okay. So this text tells us three things very clearly. One, that Jesus is eternal. Two, that Jesus is distinct from God. And Jesus is one with God. Those were John 1, 1 through 3, and then verse 14 as well. It shows that Jesus is eternal. Jesus is distinct from God, the word was with God, and then yet he is one with God, the word was God. And so Jesus, if you recognize the deity of Christ, I want to say that I believe that you will be backed into a Trinitarian corner. If you deny the deity of Christ in an effort to escape a Trinitarian conclusion, um, I don't believe that you pass the doctrinal tests of scripture to be named a Christian. On the other hand, you cannot deny the incarnation of Jesus and be named a Christian either. Let's turn over to Colossians, another big text. Paul um, needed to deal with the topic of Jesus being fully God in human flesh. I believe that is interesting. This is just a personal hunch. I believe that's very interesting to note that Paul asked for the Colossian letter to be read at Laodicea. And if you go to the Laodicean church, it's pretty evident to me that no one in the Laodicean church was a Christian. So if they were struggling with the same error and the doctrinal heresy that was rooting in Colossae really blossomed over in Laodicea, it is entirely possible that they were not Christians as a result of this. Uh, Colossians 1, 15 through 19. This is um, just a very blunt text regarding the full divinity of Jesus. So catch this, the deity of, I'm sorry, Paul says that Jesus is one with God, that he is the inheritor and above all creation. That's what firstborn of all creation means. When it says firstborn, the idea there is like an Old Testament firstborn. You're the inheritor. It's not saying that he was the first created being. Uh, Prodicus does not mean first creation. That he is the inheritor, that he is above all creation, and that Jesus possesses full divinity. But here's the big point. Notice the next three verses. See how intimately connected Christ's deity is with the atonement. Colossians 1, 20 through 23.
by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your mind because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. If you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel, this is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven, and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. Christ's deity is essential to the gospel. That is what I believe Paul's point there. Again, Colossians 2, 6-9, another beautiful statement regarding the deity of Christ. Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Once again, we have a statement of Christ's deity followed by a discussion of the atonement of Jesus for our sin. Catch this. Here's, here's a nice way to think about it. Fundamentally, if Jesus was not fully God, he would not have been the perfect sacrifice to take away our sins. And uh, 2 Corinthians 5.21 is a little bit of support for that. We're not having it read. If Jesus were not fully man, he would not have been able to save us from our sin because a human representative needed to take the punishment as a representative for our whole race. And the support for that is Romans 5, 12 through 19. So it had to be fully God to be perfect because if he were man alone, he wouldn't be perfect. But if he weren't fully man, he could not be an adequate representation on our behalf. Uh, the idea being, you know, we were born into Adam, the first full human, but now we have a better second Adam as the theological term because we are born in Christ, who is a representative on our behalf as humans. Fully God, fully man is necessary for our sins to be forgiven. Turn to Philippians 2, 5 through 10. Let's go ahead and have that read. This passage uh, really highlights how there are three distinct persons, yet they are one in nature and essence. Again, notice the elements. Jesus is equal with God, yet God is distinct from him. Once again, backing one into a Trinitarian position. Philippians 2, 5 through 10. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant. Being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth, on, and under the earth. And every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Now notice the word Lord right there. Lord is a word commonly used to refer to God in the Old Testament. Everyone will someday learn that Jesus is the sovereign Lord over the universe, that he is indeed God. Everyone, every knee shall bow, every tongue shall confess. The name Jesus shows his humanity. The, the name Lord, uh, which is the Greek translation of Yahweh from the Old Testament, shows his divinity or W or Y H W H if you're into the uh, 
acronistic spelling of his name. In order to be a Christian, Romans says that we must recognize what? The lordship of Jesus Christ. Romans 10.9. I believe that this phrase in Romans addresses both his divinity and uh, submission to him as well. Because in order to recognize him as Lord, in the Old Testament sense, what that means, you must recognize that he is Yahweh, that he is God. And also, you must recognize that he is God and you are not God. You are not sovereign over your life. There is no other God. Your submission is to God. Every knee is going to bow. Christians get a head start. That's why it says Romans 10.9. Romans 10.9. It is. you declare with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead you will be saved it is essential to salvation that we recognize Christ as Lord which encapsulates submission and deity in order to be saved one final reason uh, is found in 1 John chapter 5 20 through 21 if you would like to read that Of Jesus, which he says is son, it says this is the true God. Jesus is the true God and eternal life. And I've always wondered, like, what is John doing there at the end? Little children, keep yourselves from idols. What a really random way to end a book. I mean, I just want to throw in one moral command there at the end. Like, what is your point? But I, I'm going to make the same argument Athanasius did. If we worship Jesus, if you go to church, if you sing praises to Jesus, if you bow down and pray to Jesus and he isn't God that means you're committing idolatry worship is reserved for God alone and if we pray to God sing about if we sing pray love adore and live our life only for Jesus if he's not God you're committing idolatry when you read this again the son of God Jesus Christ this is the true God in eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Anytime that you deny the deity of Christ and you pray to him, you are committing idolatry. And that's how he finishes 1 John, which we will get to that passage. Worship belongs to God alone. So let me turn back to uh, John chapter, uh, 1 John chapter 4 to close. If you, My friends, if you hear another gospel that teaches that Jesus was just some phantom spirit who did not come in the flesh, don't listen to him. If they say that Jesus is not God, don't listen to them. These are points which are essential to the gospel and Galatians 1, 4 through 9. If it's different from the gospel, we must reject it. Galatians 1, 4 through 9. Gladions 1, 4 through 9. Sure, I can do it if you want. Word drill, let's go. Alright, so Galatians 1, 4 through 9. Who gave himself, uh, yeah, I'll start at 3 because it's the end of the sentence. Uh, Grace and peace to you from God our Father and Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you 
to live in grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preached to you, let them be under God's curse. As we have already said, so now I say again, if anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let them be under God's curse. 1 John 4, 3. 1 John goes a little bit further and says that, and this is in terms of Jesus in, in the incarnation, every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. And this is the spirit of the Antichrist. If someone does not confess Jesus and the whole of who he is and what he has done for us, do not be deceived into that, believing them by philosophy or human tradition. If someone in your family says that Jesus isn't God, don't believe him. If, you, if your pastor says that Jesus isn't God or Jesus didn't come in the flesh, don't believe them. If a scholar or Bart Ehrman says that Jesus isn't God or didn't come in the flesh, don't believe him. If Paul came back from the literal dead and said that Jesus wasn't God, Galatians says, if I or name, it's Paul. <laughs> it's, yeah, it isn't. You're right. And But Paul said, even if I were to, of all things possible, I mean, if I were to deviate from the gospel, don't believe me. If an angel came to you and said that Jesus wasn't God or didn't come into the flesh, don't believe him. If I were to say later, and, you know, in a couple of years I come back and I say, Jesus didn't come in the flesh, or Jesus isn't God. Don't believe me. I will be like St. Nicholas and punch you in the face. Thank you so much. <laughs> yeah, St. Nick was a rather brutal figure in the area. Arius he punched, right? Yeah. Arguing over it. Yeah. Saint, Santa slapped Arius back. across the face because he was so angry. Also, patron saint of prostitutes, but that's kind of unrelated. <laughs> if, if, if any... Look it up. Look it up. <laughs> yeah, I don't want that on my Google history. Thing. If anyone says that Jesus isn't God, Jesus didn't come in the flesh, don't believe him. Always got to be on guard. Always got to be watching, beloved. I'm going to finish with a quote from Polycarp of Smyrna. I could not find a quote, by the way. This is right in the heat of docetism when they're involved in persecution. One of the church fathers said, if, I, um, if Jesus didn't come in the flesh, then my chains aren't real either is what they said. But here's a, here's a different quote from Polycarp. Everyone who shall not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is antichrist. Whoever shall not confess the testimony of the cross is of the devil. Whoever shall pervert the oracles of the Lord to his own lusts and say that there is neither resurrection nor judgment, that man is the firstborn of Satan. So let us forsake the vanity of many and their false teachings and turn to the word which is delivered to us from the beginning with strong hints of first john sort of language from the beginning and those sort of things so um emily would you be willing to pray to close us for the evening Amen.